Hello, I'm Dr. Annalene Weston, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Matters, our latest series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. As the name suggests, Risk Matters is all about managing risk. In this podcast series, we'll be taking your feedback and queries and putting them to leading industry experts, getting them to answer the difficult questions about managing risk and working safely. It's all about what to do when managing risk matters most. In this edition, I was lucky to catch up with Dr. Geraldine Moses. Geraldine's a doctor of clinical pharmacy and specializes in medicines information, and she provides the ADA's National Drug Advisory Service, Pharma Advice. In between responding to queries from dental practitioners, she works in the Drug Information Service at the Marta Hospital in Brisbane and works as an adjunct associate professor in the schools of pharmacy at UQ and the Queensland University of Technology. She also consults to organisations such as the Department of Veteran Affairs, MPS Medicine Wise and the Australian Commission for Safety and Quality in Healthcare. Geraldine's a member of the expert writing group for the most recent edition of Therapeutic Guidelines, Oral and Dental, and she sits on the ADA Therapeutics Committee. Many of us have met Geraldine as she presents CPD for dental practitioners and pharmacists throughout Australia and New Zealand. Geraldine's been very highly honoured over the years, uh, starting in 2002 when she was named Australian Pharmacist of the Year. In 2013, she was awarded the ADAQ Medal of Merit, and in 2019, she was honoured to be made a member of the Order of Australia. So thank you so much for taking the time to join me today, Geraldine. That's fantastic. Um, As with all risk matters, I have a series of questions to put to you that have been asked by our members. So I'll start from the beginning. The first question we have is, what are the medications or categories of medications that have the potential to cause the most harm when combined with dental treatment? So essentially, as a dental practitioner, which ones do I need to look for as a real red flag moment? Oh, Lordy, what a huge question. Uh, I did an audit in a dental practice a couple of years ago where I looked at a series of 300 odd patients and just looked at all their medicines and looked for all the potential dental complications. And about 40% of all the medicines could cause complications. And the the main complications I was looking for were bleeding risk, impaired wound healing, increased risk of infection, increased risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw, that sort of thing. Uh, And drug interactions would be another one. And like, so it might impair the efficacy of pain medicines. So I reckon top of the pops would be increased risk of bleeding and therefore it's going to be fairly commonly used drugs. Certainly the ones that say to you, hello, I'm a bleeding drug, so anticoagulants. Yeah. But then there's all the sneaky ones like antidepressants. SSRI, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, have an aspirin-like effect on uh, platelets, so they increase the risk of bleeding about the same as low-dose aspirin. And herbal remedies are the ones that come up a lot as well. That's how fish oils, isn't it? Can it? Oh, fish oils is a bit last century. <laughs> <laughs> hardly anyone takes fish oil anymore because it's so passe. Because it, it's been shown there's no benefit for heart disease anymore. Um, but the, I mean, people still take it, don't they? Because they think it's good for anything. yeah. So, but the dose for a bleeding effect has to be more than three grams of oil per day. And not many people take that much for sure because it makes you feel sick. It's gross, yeah. The one that I hate the most is turmeric. So turmeric's got a really totally. It's uh, so trendy at the moment. I know. People put it in their tea and their coffee. Turmeric lattes. But So I'm not worried about turmeric in your tea or coffee or in a curry because the amount in food or a beverage is quite small. Yeah. But the amount that's in pharmaceuticals, and there's a lot of those sold in pharmacies that have names like Pain Away, Pain Be Gone, uh, Caruso's Curcumin uh-huh. 1000. Uh, these are sold in the, under the guise as being natural anti-inflammatories, and who cares if they're natural? They are anti-inflammatories. So like any anti-inflammatory, they can influence prostaglandin synthesis and therefore influence your risk for bleeding, especially gastrointestinal bleeding. I've had direct involvement with loads and loads of patients who've bled on turmeric. So you need to ask your patients about their complementary medicines or any supplements, natural health products, and pharmaceutical forms of turmeric are going to increase bleeding risk significantly. 
Gosh, thank you. That's amazing. I, I didn't know that at all. I knew about the SSIs because I feel that those antidepressant type drugs, I feel that they're so commonly occurring or commonly prescribed that we've become so used to them that we perhaps don't consider the effect that they're having on people's bodies anymore. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're sort of normalised, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and so, so many of our patients are taking them that we perhaps don't have that red flag next to them that we should. But the turmeric, I have a number of my patients are quite elderly and a number of them are taking turmeric for their arthritis. So they have their raft of drugs from the GP and then they have their other pile of drugs that they <laughs> take like their glucosamine and chondroitin and this oil and that oil I mean it's all yeah. krill these days of course k2 yeah. is probably much trendier than fish oil I guess and then <laughs> turmeric too so that's really helpful thank you that's so all um, of those you just mentioned also cause bleeding risk so krill oil carries the same risk as fish oil and by the way there's less EPA DHA in krill oil than fish oil so all the claims that krill oil is better or superior to fish oil is just wrong gosh um but people do take a lot more of it for some reason so krill oil you must still look at. And what was the other one you said? Oh, glucosamine. Glucosamine has an antiplatelet effect as well. Uh, now, most of these might not do much. Turmeric on its own would certainly have a significant effect on its own. But the other ones, like a bit of an oil here and a bit of glucosamine there, I think on their own you could probably ignore. But the fact that the patient might be on all of those, like the patient you just mentioned, that cumulative effect on bleeding risk is what needs to be noticed. Absolutely. Now that's incredibly helpful. Thank you. And that flowed into our next question we had, which are what drugs or categories of drugs are often most missed or disregarded by dental practitioners. So I would suggest complementary medicines. We certainly need to be pay, keeping a much tighter eye on, don't we? Totally. And can I just say one little hint? Sure. When you document the complementary medicines, don't uh, ask the question as a leading question. This is what I have to train all my pharmacy colleagues with as well. Don't say, you don't take any herbs and vitamins, do you? No. <laughs> it has to be an open question. So, And I prefer a what question. So what herbs and vitamins do you take? Everybody does take something. So that's the first thing. I ask it as an open question. And then secondly, get the brand name. So don't let them get away with saying, I take a bit of turmeric and a bit of glucosamine. Because they've all got so much more in there than just those compounds and sometimes that's the least of my concerns it's the other yeah. sneaky ingredients that can carry either drug interactions or adverse effects you need to know what product they actually take even it's the woman uh the one lately is gumby gumby tea <laughs> and it's very popular especially in rural areas uh, claimed to be an aboriginal medicine i don't think it is but it's got a oh i've seen it advertised on facebook Oh, there you go. That's how a lot of people access it and also on eBay. But yeah. There's um, lots of big bioflavonoids in Gumby Gumby and lots of other herbal remedies as well that sneak into these products that don't declare them on a tea and they certainly don't put them on the label of other pharmaceutical forms that we're going to ignore unless you find out the product's actual brand name. Gosh. Yeah, so don't just write down patient take some ginkgo and some Gumby Gumby. Yeah. But get the brand name. I actually had a patient recently who was taking a whole load of um, mushroom uh, tinctures uh -huh. and she was also taking some medications that she'd had imported from the US, mm. or probably from eBay or whatever. And they were purportedly going to stop her from contracting COVID. And she was giving me all these names. And in the end, I got her to actually go home and take a photo Excellent. of each of the things and the back of it so I could see what was in it because I just thought patient takes mushrooms. I mean, what does that even <laughs> mean? <laughs> and um, she didn't require any active treatment, but I felt that if she did, I really didn't understand even the names of the medicaments she was on yeah. and they were imported medicaments, let alone what they could potentially do. So now that's really helpful. I'll keep an eye out for Gumby so Gumby too. So our listeners need to take note of that, that if you are struggling with all the names and it's just getting too annoying and taking up too much time, if they just take a photo of all the products and email, email them to you later, yeah. then that can cut that process down in, um, greatly. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I'm glad I thought to do it. Cause like I say, I just had no idea what she was taking. <laughs> Now, you mentioned um, osteonecrosis, and we always relate that to being people who take bisphosphonates. Are there any other drugs that can increase the risk? About one million. I thought there <laughs> might be. I sensed that was going to be your answer. So what types of drugs do I need to look out for? 
Well, yeah, so the days of bronze are over, aren't they? And this phosphonates are even a little bit passe in clinical medicine anyway because yeah. they're terrible drugs to take. However, um, now obviously we've got denosumab, which is available either as the brand called Prolia that people yeah. take twice a year for osteoporosis. But if they're being treated for malignancies, then they'll get the same drug but in double the dose and once a month Gosh. Uh, in a brand name called Exgeva. We now know that if people were to abruptly cease denosumab, they can get an abrupt decline in their bone density, and that's quite dangerous, isn't it? Absolutely. And even like the, the line that patients hear is, you'll never be able to stop taking Prolia. And I'm not sure we need to think of it that way. I think it should be, what are you doing on a drug that means if you miss the next dose by a millisecond, you're going to lose bone density? That's sort of a dumb drug, isn't it? Mm, it's not helpful, is it? So I feel that the uh, product availability of, of that particular brand uh, or that particular drug for that indication is probably limited and it will be re, uh, taken over by newer drugs for osteoporosis and one of the things that will happen in that time is that bisphosphonates will come back uh, but what we found out in the meantime is that lots of other drugs that modify cell or neural and also are used in treatment of cancers things like tyrosine kinase inhibitors mm -hmm. and vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitors, very fancy drugs also have um, uh, a warning on the, in the product information saying that they impair wound healing. So they definitely do uh, increase the risk of ONJ. Um, but also if you were to just cut yourself, that wound might not heal as well when you're on those drugs. So that's drugs like um, all the drugs ending in NIB, serafinib, mm -hmm. sunitinib, imatinib, and uh, all the ones ending in mus, serolimus, tracholimus, and then um, vascular endothelial growth factors tend to be drugs like um, uh, bevacizumab and uh, I can't remember the other one. <laughs> they're long words, aren't they? <laughs> so they're fancy drugs. They're going to look like big words, and a lot of dentists will just go, oh, I don't need to know that, and you really do. Yeah. But the next group of drugs, I'd certainly say you must take a, a huge amount of notice of, notice of is corticosteroids. Yeah, okay. Oral ones like prednisone and prednisolone or dexamethasone. Yeah. Loves. Uh, they're giving bits of dexamethasone, aren't they, to reduce postoperative pain and swelling in dentistry. Uh, corticosteroids are fantastic in teeny tiny short courses, like one dose or maybe maybe three at the most, uh, but prolonged use, anything longer than about five to seven days can dramatically impair wound healing. Uh, so if you've got a patient who's on uh, a drug like a vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitor and a corticosteroid, you've now doubled their risk. Then they might also be on autoimmune disease modifiers. Yep. So drugs like methotrexate. Yep which, you know, started its life as a cytotoxic agent to treat cancer, isn't much used in cancer anymore. No. But in teeny doses given once a week, it's used in everyone with rheumatoid arthritis. It's the yep. first-line agent. And that's been shown now to also impair cell turnover, impair wound healing, and just put enough of a spanner in the works that may also contribute to an INJ risk in a patient who's had an extraction. Yeah. That's all of these drugs. And then there's um, a few other agents that um, are used in the management of RA, like Humira is the brand name. Yeah, I've patients who take that. Yeah, so there's quite a few case reports of patients on that. So, again, on its own, maybe it's not that big a risk factor, but uh, in combination with the other drugs a patient might be on, so they usually are on methotrexate as well to... Yep. Uh, prevent what's called auto antibody formation that you can yep. pr produce antibodies to the antibody that you're taking mm -hmm. and corticosteroids then you've got three drugs on board that can and of course people with ra tend to develop osteoporosis so they might also be on prolia yeah so those are the patients where you have to take great care in taking their medication history because there might be multiple agents contributing to their own j risk or feeding it. And of course, dose is going to be quite dependent again, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for mentioning that because it's really annoying me that dentists still, when they're taking a medication history, only write down the names of the drugs and not the dose and the duration. I know it's a pain in the neck, but unless you get the dose that they take and how long they've been on it, we can't make clinical decisions 
on how much risk there is because you need those other two bits in the story. Yeah, I have to say I have, as I mentioned, a number of elder patients and they'll bring in that list of how many milligrams and how many times a day. And then they'll have like the line and then below the line, they'll have, these are my new drugs since last time I saw you, <laughs> which again, but it's, inc- and I just scan that into the system because it's so incredibly helpful mm. to, to know exactly what they're on, but also how much, because even if they're things I don't recognize, I can look them up and see, is yeah. this a low dose or a high dose? But you're obviously also telling the patient that that's their homework and that they need to bring that list with them in. Whereas other practitioners are expecting people to remember it off the top of their head when they're sitting in the chair. And it's quite a stressful and time sensitive situation. And people will just go, I don't know, it's a white one and a blue one. (laughs) The blue one for my heart. (laughs) (laughs) And also I'd highly recommend that people think about sending the patient to their pharmacy and asking the pharmacist to help them document their medicine. We love putting together a medication history. We will obviously realize that dose and duration are part of the story so we won't leave that out and we'll also make sure we include their vitamins and their herbal remedies and you know other sort of non-prescription lifestyle medicines even Um, so if you're concerned that your patient uh, isn't entirely health literate send them off to their pharmacy to get that list and always get them to work on it before they come in I'd never thought of doing that. That is such a good idea because then, because sometimes I find my patients don't know if they're still taking a certain right. drug or they, they don't know that. <laughs> I, think some of my, <laughs> I think some of them take so many in all fairness, particularly my older patients taking drugs and then they're taking drugs for the side effects of the drugs that they're taking. And they just don't know. They just don't know. how. So I think that having somebody who can then come and edit their list and say no we swapped this one for that one that's right yeah yeah that would be really helpful uh, actually can be paid for that service as well there's a service called a meds check it's medicare funded patient gets it for free uh the bottom line is don't just rock up to the pharmacy and go hello i'd like a meds check pharmacists have got things to do yeah uh and they really don't need extra pressure when they're trying to pump out you know 300 prescriptions a day as well as immunize everyone and yeah that's right (laughs) their blood pressure and all sorts of things Uh, so make an appointment to see the pharmacist they'll make time for it and they will get paid for it and the outcome of that process is to give you an up-to-date medication list now that's really helpful that's going to be something that I encourage my patients to organize now because as I said I have a number of patients with I can't use the word now with lots of drugs (laughs) And um, I think it would be helpful to them as well as to me. I think it would take a lot of pressure off them. Thank you. That's fantastic. Um, I was going to change subject completely now. Uh, This is a question that we get asked a lot. And it's often by practitioners who will ring up quite concerned. And it's about those patients with potential drug seeking behaviors so we'll Uh often get a younger practitioner often rings up and say I've got this patient I've taken the tooth out and they want I don't know oxycodone and I've told them that they can't have it and it's not going to work anyway and that they need to have this and that they're insistent or they want endone and they keep coming and they keep coming and I what do I do so are there any resources or things that are available for practitioners if a patient's exhibiting drug seeking behavior are there any flags we should look for well, in Queensland, it's safe script, isn't it? Absolutely. So this, it's been already running in other states. For, for example, in Victoria and Tasmania, they've had it for three years. They call it, no, sorry, they call it safe script. We call it Q-script. Q-script. It's being launched in New South Wales at the end of May, so this month. Uh, is that appropriate for this recording? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's appropriate for this recording. <laughs> uh, so it will be in every state bar Western Australia. Uh, once that happens uh, so you are expected to log on to safe script here in uh, sorry if you're in New South Wales or Q script if you're here in Queensland and you put the patient's name in and their date of birth yep and then you can find out uh, what their history is unfortunately because it's a new platform if they've had years of drug abuse it won't be documented yet because they haven't put retrospective data in there but as time goes on this tool become much more useful as a way of checking up on your patient and you no longer have to rely on a feeling in your waters yeah. that they might be a dodgy patient, for yeah. want of a better term, uh, you now can actually consult a resource. And if they, for example, have had an opioid um, dependency um, 
and they've gone into a treatment program, you can even see what treatment program you can see with what they're being treated and you can get the name of the treating doctor and contact that treating doctor because the contact details will be there. So I did that recently for a patient here in Queensland where they felt an opioid might be necessary for the patient. So they rang the treating doctor using the contact details on QScript and he authorised the, the drug that he would prefer his patient to be on. So everyone was so happy. That's amazing. Platform to consult, yeah. Because in all fairness, some patients, because of the drugs they've taken in the past, it, their pain pathways have changed, haven't they? Totally, yes, that's right. But it's very hard to work that out. So I guess um, what you were talking about with the person who just insists that they mm. must have blah, blah drug can be very difficult to, to deal with. And even if you did give them the drug thereafter, you might only just be feeding their dependence rather than yeah. really helping with their pain management. So I think the first thing is to stand your ground that we know which drugs are most effective for management of most post-operative uh, or infectious sort of dental pain is an anti-inflammatory because it's inflammatory pain. Yeah. And opioids will do nothing at all for that yeah. kind of pain. Um, but the other thing is to... Uh, read up on how to manage these patients and I'm sure you've got resources Annalene about uh, things to say and questions to ask for these patients but um, the NPS also has NPS Medicine Wise yeah we've got some very useful tool on um, managing the drug-seeking patient um, in dentistry I find the usual line is they'll say they're allergic yeah <laughs> it only <laughs> works for me this medication is the only yeah. one that works for me the medicine knows me and <laughs> so that's when your suspicion antennae should go up because it's yep. not like the medicine does know their name or you know <laughs> knows oh you've got your pain in your elbow okay i'll go there yeah uh the, the medicines can only do what they do and and in a person who's had persistent pain or or long-term exposure to opioids it's not going to be straightforward managing that pain so if it's going to be outside your competency the easiest thing to do is just say, I can't do this and I've got no training in prescribing in that drug. And mm -hmm. Most dentists really don't know how to prescribe oxycodone appropriately, um, mainly because there's sort of special things you have to do on the prescription. Um, so I, I don't know, I'd like to know how you feel about this, Annie, but like maybe we should just say to them they should be referred to their doctor for that kind of complex pain management. I have, well, I, I think we've discussed this before, Jerry. my prescription pad actually has moths um, and dust on it because I'm quite difficult to get any drugs out of because um, I just don't think I'm necessarily the best person to be prescribing my patients anything. Um, but yeah, certainly certain drugs, there's like a level at which I tap out and I say, this is not something I am prepared to give you. Talking about management of pain, we were, of course, many of us, taught that we need to alternate neurofen and paracetamol for the best pain relief but my understanding from our previous conversations jerry is this isn't the best regime to offer no alternating is very last century you notice i giggled when you said alternating. <laughs> it's almost laughable so yeah don't alternate peoples um what is it peeps we're supposed to say uh <laughs> it's just i think alternating was a great way of keeping people busy uh, especially parents of sick children. So that's really where it started was in pediatrics. And if you had a kid who had a terrible fever and some horrible illness and they didn't know what it was and they were maybe far away from medical care, all you could administer was paracetamol and they were too frightened of giving ibuprofen. We're talking like 25 years ago, 20, 30 years ago. So they would just say, alternate the drugs. And that would keep the parents busy. And hopefully by the time they were finished giving drugs all day, the kid got better. But yeah. these days we can do much more effective things. So we have now worked out that if you give paracetamol and ibuprofen simultaneously, uh, they're such different drugs that when they're used together, they have a synergistic effect and yeah. they work better together than either alone. And you get the rapid onset of paracetamol, but also the improved efficacy of both drugs working on pain pathways together because the ibuprofen works peripherally on the inflammatory sites of the injury or the infection. Paracetamol works centrally on the delivery of pain to your brain where you go, ouch, mm -hmm. working together. And then both together works for about six to eight hours, whereas each drug individually might have worn off after more like four, maximum six. So we say um, stronger and longer okay. together and alternating 
uh, all you ever would have got was one drug at a time. So yeah. it's not very effective, doesn't work for very long. And people have got lives to live. So if they can actually take their drugs less frequently and actually get more efficacy out of them, they can go back to their lives and yeah. do things. That's a good thing. Um, so with that then, you can now buy medications where they're packaged together. Are they much chop or are they just a oh, thing? They're great, yeah, but they're a little bit more expensive. And you yeah. don't get many tablets in a pack. Yeah. Uh, plus, strangely, the TGA gave them odd labelling instructions. And I think we do need to talk about this because I've heard some experts poncing on about these directions as if that's o- the only way you can use them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's brand names like Neuromol, Cosinophen, Myrcinophen, Combigesic. There's loads and loads of brands now. Those are the ones that have 400 milligrams of ibuprofen with 500 of paracetamol. Mm-hmm. There's Maxigesic, I'm sure a lot of people know. Yep. That's got less ibuprofen in it. Look, it's better than none, but it's not the amount of ibuprofen that is in all the clinical trials. Um, so when these drugs came out, the TGA was most concerned that people would just take them like they have the individual ingredients and take two at a time and take them four to six hourly. And we'd have people dead in the streets from <laughs> yeah. massive overdoses of two drugs at the same time. Uh, so contrary to what happened overseas, so they were launched in the UK be- way before they came to Australia. They The original instructions were two up to three times a day uh, for the first one to two days and then one three times a day thereafter. Mm-hmm. Whereas the TGA said, oh, no, we can't trust people to do that. So, we're, And if you look at the clinical trials, uh, one tablet actually was almost as good as two. There was very little difference. Oh, okay. So they said, let's just say one tablet is all to be taken every six to eight hours. We know the general public will just be ridiculous and take two anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's what's on the packaging. And so a lot of people, have, experts have been able to say, have been saying, I'll just start that again. So that's what's on the packaging. And because some experts think that's the official directions for these products, they say that's not going to be good enough for our patients. All the clinical trials actually said to use two tablets in the first, say, day post-op. So that's what I, and we do that with a lot of other drugs, don't we? Yeah. You try and give as much pain relief immediately post-op to get that pain under control and stop any wind-up and hypersensitization. So we'd say give two of the combined tablets and then wind down to one when you can and then go to the individual ingredients thereafter. So the only problem is they do cost a little bit more uh, and some people will say, but I've got Panadol and Nurofen at home. Why can't I just use those? And you can. Absolutely. Yeah. But some people will go, oh, that means I've got to take two of the Panadols and two of the Nurofens and that's four tablets and that's a lot. Yeah, I can't take tablets. I find it really like that's what patients say, isn't it? Yeah, I can't yeah. take or tablets. They'll rattle when they walk. Absolutely. <laughs> I hate that line. <laughs> <laughs> so look, if that's going to freak them out, then that's when the combined tablets are so useful because it does look like less tablets. Yeah. So if anybody was swallowing difficulties, but if there are other people who go, I don't care if I should take four, and they are keen to use up the tablets I've already got at home, then there's no problem with that. So I just need to also say to remind people that paracetamol and ibuprofen are better absorbed away from food. And so uh, one of the ways in which people can stuff up these medicines and make them less effective is by taking them with food. That's contrary to what most people hear. You know, the madge over the back fence or the pharmacist or the dentist might say, Renee, you must take these medicines with food because that's what everybody says. But we now know from really good pharmacokinetic trials that both paracetamol and ibuprofen are less well absorbed so it reduces their cmax their maximum concentrations mm-hmm. and it delays their absorption if taken on a full stomach and if Given we're treating we, people for pain that's the last thing we want to do we want them right. to get the pain relief as quickly as possible and now that we also know that um food taking these drugs on a full stomach doesn't improve their safety it does not prevent gastrointestinal injury then what's the point other than yeah. making a health professional feel good and, you know, virtuous for having said, take the food. <laughs> so uh, we need to make sure these patients take them away from food and then the drugs will be absorbed better and faster. Now that's really helpful. Just Thank take you. Take them with water. 
I just wanted to say just one more question regarding, I guess, pain drugs, because really there's two types of drugs that we prescribe a lot and it's pain drugs and it's antibiotics. Spoiler (laughs) alert, antibiotics are next. Um, It's my understanding, Jerry, that many dental patients were first introduced to drugs of addiction at a dental practice. They come in, for example, for wisdom teeth extraction at 18. They're given an amount of drugs of addiction and they like the way it feels. And then a pattern is set or a die is cast. What steps do you think we as dental practitioners can take to better manage this? Do we just stick to our anti-inflammatories, do you think? And paracetamol, absolutely. We now know that they're very uh, effective medicines with no risk of abuse. Uh, Clearly, ibuprofen is the excellent medicine because it gets rid of the inflammation however carries much more risk Mm -hmm. so you still need to be careful about uh, honoring risk factors and patients who need to stay far away from anti-inflammatories but when you practice in an evidence-based way and you don't believe you know um, urban myths things like any asthmatic can't take ibuprofen that's just Mm -hmm. wrong there's a Mm -hmm. very very tiny percent of asthmatics who have a particular kind of um, predisposition to exacerbation of um, respiratory distress that might have a problem with aspirin and maybe ibuprofen, but by far the majority, like 98% of asthmatics can take NSAIDs perfectly safely. Uh, So it just means that there's very few people for whom you really need to be using uh, the opioids. And so if you just say, I'm not going to prescribe them, then you won't run into that trouble. Yeah, so the study you were talking about was in adolescence. The analysis in the United States of um, teenagers and adolescents who'd been prescribed opioids, mostly codeine and oxycodone, maybe hydromorphone uh, post-operatively, and something like I think 15 to 16% developed an opioid use disorder thereafter. And and it's horrible as a dental practitioner, because I always think that the clues in the name, we are health care providers. So we want to help and care for people. Mm. So to think that our actions might inadvertently trigger or cause something that causes somebody so much harm to their Mm. to their health and to their life is a horrendous thought. So I think it's good to know that those simple drugs, Mm. those simple, safe drugs really do still have a place in dental practice. That's really reassuring. Yeah, I think that's really wonderful that you've mentioned that about being a healthcare practitioner because um, uh, your intent is to help. However, what I'm finding with drugs, because people aren't being taught pharmacology at university much anymore, most dental courses have taken it out. Have they really? We did a year of pharmacology. With, with uh, the so doctors well, at my try. age though last century it was all different <laughs> to be honest Jerry but <laughs> so look, they're throwing drugs into different subjects and hoping that you'll pick it up sort of on the hop uh, mm. but it, it will be a mishmash of picking up different drugs in different ways at different times rather than learning at drugs a to z in pharmacology anymore um, so I know for sure University of Queensland doesn't teach pharmacology anymore so what happens is that Mostly the dentists are finding out what drugs are good for, and that's about it. You know, this is the problem and this is the drug you use it for. And they're not learning enough about the sneaky bits about medicines. For example, what might cause drug interactions. So, for example, a case that I had last week, the dentist rang me uh, to a very distressed patient for whom they were already prescribing, uh, you know, a full dose of paracetamol and ibuprofen, but also throwing in oxycodone. Sorry, they started with ibuprofen and panadine fought and the they're saying you know surely if the codeine's not working the oxycodone's not going to work and then I asked about the full medical history and the patient was on an antidepressant called duloxetine mm-hmm. Pristique is the brand name yeah Pristique I have patients on Pristique so duloxetine is a very potent inhibitor of CYP2D6 that's the enzyme that converts codeine to morphine so that patient would have got no benefit from the codeine at all throughout the whole treatment regimen uh so you know and presumably by the time they were going to if they were going to switch to oxycodone and the hope that it might do something different which it won't no but it pharmacokinetically may because it's not going to be impaired by the codeine sorry by the duloxetine uh they might think oh they've taken all this codeine they're now a little bit tolerant to it let's give them a big dose yeah and you could then give a toxic dose uh, so you you have to know more than just what the drugs are good for. You have to know 
how they work, what they're doing, what's their mechanism of action. Are they a pro-drug that needs to be converted by a certain metabolic process, half-life? <laughs> Things like that's terribly important. So it's, it's going to be a catastrophe, I think, once this lack of understanding proper pharmacology gets out there into practice. And certainly from a practicing safety perspective, that's quite an alarming thought, isn't it? Mm. So moving on to antibiotics then, which are obviously, okay. obviously something that if you are going to get any medication out of me, generally that would be the only one you might just be able to get out of me if, you know, with the, the moon's in Jupiter and there's a stiff breeze behind you or something. <laughs> so one of the first questions we got, and I thought this question was quite fun because I know the case they're referring to. So the question that we were asked is, does amoxicillin actually reduce the effect of the oral contraceptive pill because I remember a case from the UK where a doctor prescribed it and had to fund the extension to the house new car school fees etc for a surprise bundle of joy that arrived after a patient got pregnant now that's the question that we were submitted now I actually remember that case as well because I'm wow. of a certain vintage so the, the, it was a dentist actually had, had prescribed some amoxicillin, hadn't checked that the patient was on the oral contraceptive pill. The patient became pregnant and essentially, uh, allegedly, whether or not it's true or whether it's an urban myth, was able to have a, a, a what we call a, a wrongful life case. Right. So an unexpected baby case. Is it true, though? Does the oral contraceptive pill and penicillin, are they not friends or are they good friends? Not anymore. So, no, they're friends now, but they okay. didn't used to they be. Didn't used to be. <laughs> <laughs> They've made up. So I think it was 2014 that the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in the UK said enough's enough. We're not going to carry on with this ridiculous claim that broad-spectrum antibiotics impair the efficacy of the combined oral contraceptive pill. There's actually only a handful of cases around the world that have ever been reported that potentially could have been evidence that there was an interaction. And the mechanism by which it was supposed to occur was that broad spectrum antibiotics would knock off some of your, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, microbiome and alter the gut population. And they were theoretically contributing to the absorption of the estrogen in the pill, especially if presented as ethanol estradiol. We now know that doesn't even happen. It, the pill doesn't rely on bacteria for its absorption. And uh, when they looked back at individual cases, they said, actually, you probably could blame it on non-compliance better than if it had anything to do with bloody amoxicillin. Uh, so the only way in which anybody perhaps could impair the efficacy of the pill would be perhaps if you could develop diarrhea. So the you know, increase in gastrointestinal transit uh, meant it didn't get absorbed properly because it went through, yeah, it went through too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you threw up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you had a big night on the alcohol, those sorts of things can happen. So um, they put out a report saying, we no longer support this claim that there's an interaction just based on if you take amoxicillin or any broad spectrum antibiotic, it won't, it will make the pill less effective. We don't think that's true. There may be other extenuating circumstances like vomiting, diarrhea or um, non-compliance, non-adherence. And so we don't think patients should be made to, just because they're taking amoxicillin, have to use a second form of contraception whilst they're on it, because that's just not necessary and not fun, so <laughs> not nice. Uh, so we have made quite an effort in pharmacy anyway to no longer tell people that. There are still a couple of antibiotics that might interact uh, and it's mostly antifungals, actually. Um, Griseofulvin and uh, I can't remember the other one. Those which might induce liver metabolism, speed it up, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. therefore, you know, chew up your hormones more quickly and give you lower levels. Uh, carbamazepine would do the same. Tegretol, hopefully you know about that. If anybody prescribes that for trigeminal neuralgia. But the one that has a greater reputation is St. John's wort. Yes, yeah, so there's many, many, many more cases around the world of pregnancies, un, uh, what's the word? Unplanned. Unintentional, unintentional. Yeah. Many, many more cases of unintentional pregnancy from a St. John's wart of contraceptive interaction than there ever have been with antibiotics. So um, we still want people to be aware that people do feel sick when they're on antibiotics. A lot of antibiotics, like particularly Augmentin, 
uh, anything mm. with clavulanic acid causes a lot of, like 30% of people develop a secretory diarrhea. Yeah. That's from the clavulanic acid, not from the um, penicillin. Uh, so, you know, you still, you can't rest on your laurels too much, but just saying that because you're going on antibiotic, the pill won't work is, is no longer an evidence-based statement. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I wasn't aware that that was so recent that they'd looked at that and revisited it again. And it's in the UK. But <laughs> no. we're all following. Everybody's following it. Okay. Now, talking about revisiting things, something that you and I discussed reasonably recently mm-hmm. was a patient who says they are allergic to penicillin. Right. So the question that we have here is, um, when on further questioning, they've given an answer like I had diarrhea or my mum said I had a rash when I was a baby. So my understanding from our previous conversations is that not only is that not true allergy, but that, that that's an, um, a sensitivity, but that that's just because you had it when you were a baby, it doesn't mean you're going to have it now. Is that correct? No, not really. Okay, so well, good. Just, okay, I checked. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> It depends on what you mean by the rash. Uh, so one of our problems with little babies is that, as you would know as a mum, that when kids are very, very tiny, they're prone to those viral infections of um, early childhood. And um, they tend to get them every eight to nine weeks. And, and most of those viral infections are associated with a specific exanthem, which we now can diagnose and have names for. Mm-hmm. But 20 years or more ago, you would just go, oh, child's got a rash, and no one knew why. Mm-hmm. Also, it was quite popular to give penicillins back then. So yeah. that's yeah. where a lot of people who are now in their 20s or older might have been told that they had a penicillin allergy because they were sick, they had a rash, and they'd just been given the penicillin at the same time, and the coincidence was just seen as, oh, you must be allergic. Now we would go, well, you're not getting an antibiotic, so there. <laughs> we don't do, we don't give antibiotics for those infections. But also, when the kid gets the rash, we go, no, that's what that viral infection does. So there's many, many fewer babies now who um, get labelled with penicillin allergy. And so we need to know more about the story of the person who says, when I was a baby, I got a rash after having amoxicillin, because from time to time it will be true allergy. So just saying rash just isn't enough information mm-hmm. to make that decision. Uh, so, for example, a um, dentist I know here in Brisbane, she has a, a hygienist in the practice whose son uh, developed a big urticarial rash after administration of penicillin. It was very severe and was in no way uh, associated with a viral infection. So that was true allergy and was mm-hmm. very disfiguring and scary. Gosh. Uh, and the child was very sick with it. So, you know, there's no question about it. That kid definitely had a penicillin allergy. Um, and that's why you just have to know, well, what do you mean by rash? Yeah. But the other person that you mentioned who said I was sick or I had diarrhea, um, anybody who just has a gastrointestinal complaint to substantiate their claim of allergy, you can dismiss because allergy is never just in your gut. Uh, and so they probably had an adverse effect. It was still yeah. nasty. They are calling it allergy. You know, that's the thing about being pedantic about words is allergy means we're going to tippy toe around. We probably never use that drug again. We want that on every blooming medical record in sight. um, And it'll limit our choices. Whereas if we say it was just a side effect or an adverse effect, you're still yucky, but we can play with it and might give you a different dose next time or give you its cousin drug that's similar but not the same. And yeah. we're much more likely to be able to continue to use that family of drugs. No one is ever allergic to the whole family. So that's why we shouldn't even say penicillin allergy because no one's allergic to all of them. Um, so we have to now make sure people document the actual drug the patient took. So if they took flucloxacillin, that's what they've got, is a flucloxacillin allergy. And we know that none of the other penicillins share the same side chains of flucox, so that person could actually take amoxicillin quite safely. That's fascinating. So if we have patients who tell us they're allergic, it's probably appropriate to recommend that they approach their medical practitioner to see about allergy testing, to see what they are allergic to, or do you feel that's unnecessary? I just kind of depends. So again, what I'd like is for people to document three things about that allergy, what actual drug they took, what was the, get a description of the reaction that they experienced and how long ago, 
And just from those three terms, you can sort out a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem if you just were to refer them to their medical practitioner, not all medical practitioners are up to date with this, which is very mm-hmm. sad, but unfortunately true. Uh, and they might just go, just don't take the drug. <laughs> next, because you know they're oftentimes stuck with 10-minute appointments. Um, there's a researcher in Melbourne um, whose name is Jason Trubiano, who's my hero. And he's been working with a team of um, other doctors, nurses, and pharmacists, and they've come up with a mnemonic uh, that I can't remember right now. Oh, it's PENFAST, that are the features of claimed reactions that would definitely uh, be reasonable to say is true allergy. And so it's things like the speed of onset, if they, if it was indeed fast, uh, or the peak mm-hmm. appears for a period of time then um, anyone who had their reaction within, say, an hour or mm-hmm. a couple of hours, you don't ignore that. You go, fine, you're allergic, I'll believe you. But someone for whom it was a couple of days, then that's likely to be T-cell mediated and they might never have it ever again. Uh, so for people who uh, have an interest in allergy testing, they will probably even just hear the story and they can make a decision about whether that's a true allergy or not. Uh, so I'd probably say if you want to refer them anywhere, refer them to a specialist in allergy management, not just their GP, uh, or a clinic at a hospital because there's a lot of allergy testing clinical clin- clinics like mine where, where I work at the Mater Hospital in Brisbane. We have a clinic just for that, for listening to patient stories and sorting it out for them. Yeah, that's uh, that's really helpful to know because people like my husband has been told that he had a reaction to penicillin when he was a baby and he stopped breathing. So we're like, okay, we're, but, <laughs> but respectfully, none of well, he was there, but he can't remember it. So we just don't go near that. But actually, it may well be that he that may be true. Yes, or it, it was may, probably and, an allergy back then. So that's the other point. Yeah, and that's um that's in the mnemonic as well. That. Most uh, allergies wear off with time. 50% wear off within five years, 80% within 10. So That's even though he did have something dramatic when he was a baby, it's probably gone by now. So, But he must go to an expert allergy testing place so that they can um, administer the right types of testing solutions and stand back and watch. <laughs> yeah, because you certainly wouldn't want to be giving that a crack. Darling, yeah. and, try and- some of these. Let's see what happens. All of the name of science. And, and also the moral of the story is people who've even had testing done sometimes don't believe it because yeah. they've spent their whole life uh, being anxious about this claim of allergy. You know, their mum told them when they were two that it happened and they've carried it on their shoulders for the rest of their life. It's very hard to relinquish. Yeah. So um, when the testing is done, it needs to be done by someone who really, really is authoritative and is believed. And then that they give you some sort of certification that looks really, really expert. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Gold edging and like a stamp on it so that the person doesn't feel like they really um, should not believe it or, you know, throw it in the bin and just go, no, I'm still going to say I'm allergic. That it's authoritative and convincing and that they can ditch it forever. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, our penicillins are, quite kind antibiotics compared to some of the other antibiotics that you take that can make you feel really quite nasty in your tummy so that's right and Keep of course careful. yeah and they're very good of course for uh, our oral infections yeah so and our cephalosporin so that's another thing that dentistry tends to ignore the cephalosporin family and i think a lot of that is grounded in the history of penicillin allergy that back in the day like in the 60s people thought there was a 100% cross sensitivity between penicillins and cephalosporins because they shared a beta lactam ring. Mm-hmm. I remember by... being taught that actually, not <laughs> that I was taught in the 60s. I remember being taught <laughs> well, that. I was going to say by the 80s and 90s, we were saying more like 10% cross reactivity. And now it's two. Gosh. Because we know it's not related to the beta lactam ring at all. It's related to the side chains called mm-hmm. the R1 side chains. And so even within the class, as I said before, with amoxicillin and flucloxicillin, they don't share that side chain, so they don't share the allergy risk either. And now we know that the cross-reactivity between cephalosporins is extremely low, so even a person who's got a documented allergy to flucloxicillin Mm -hmm. could have cephalexin perfectly safely. And as you say, they're really kind, safe, cheap and cheerful drugs, so we should be using them more often in dentistry. Even if someone's got like... um, 
questionable biology, you might be going, yeah, I don't believe you. In the past, you go straight to clindamycin. Now I think you should really consider using cephalexin. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Another thing that dental practitioners are quite scared of is using medications in pregnancy. Right. So I think that initially we had this, when people were pregnant, we almost didn't touch them. We wouldn't take radiographs, despite the fact x-rays move in straight lines. And, and there were all these things we wouldn't do. So with as anesthetics we're told not to use in pregnancy, there's all sorts. Mm. So what do you think for our pregnant patients in practical terms, should we be really considering seriously uh, to avoid? And are there things that there are myths around them as we're talking about? We are really dispelling some myths, aren't we today? We are. I, the first myth I would say to dispel would be local anesthetics. Yeah. You guys use such a teeny tiny dose compared with other areas of healthcare. Um, actually, and particularly in obstetrics, as you probably know, when people have an epidural anesthetic to like to deliver the baby, uh, they get gigantic volumes, liters and liters of bip of game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's not true, but very large <laughs> volumes. Um, and also, if they have any investigations done during the pregnancy, uh, they might again have an epidural administered. And so the data on the safety of drugs in the family of amide local anesthetics is coming from that use of these drugs. And yet you guys use very similar drugs or the same drugs in the mouth in this tiny, teeny volume. Yeah. And, you know, so the literature might say category C. And everyone goes, oh, that doesn't sound good because we like the sound of category A and B better. But in fact, you're not making any differentiation between volume and dose. Uh, or even root of administration that they are injecting mm -hmm. it right into the uterus and the cervix, whereas you guys are injecting it up in the mouth, miles away. Um, and Figuratively so, miles away, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, resources that guide on the safety of drugs in pregnancy can give you a bit of a bum steer. Yeah. They traditionally have used a letter of the alphabet and it doesn't tell you very much about the safety of a drug um, through the nine months of pregnancy, let alone uh, differentiating between different doses and routes of administration. But generally speaking, all dental local anesthetics are totally safe in pregnancy because it is a teeny tiny dose far, far away from where the pregnant thing is. Yeah. <laughs> and so, is. so how about one of the things that we're told to avoid in pregnancy, of course, is RA, which are nitrous oxide. Mm -hmm. That would still hold. Yeah, I think so. Look, there's, it's a bit like um, the con legal concern about the use of antibiotics with the oral contraceptive pill. There have been cases where pregnant women have been exposed to nitrous oxide in a dental setting mm -hmm. uh, in their first trimester, and there's mm -hmm. been some evidence of um, uh, impaired central nervous system mm -hmm. uh, development and um, brain function mostly once a baby's born. Now, I'd have to say that does not really hold for the pregnant patient, but it does hold for pregnant staff. So it's more an occupational risk. And there's enough literature now to say that um, people who are going to be exposed to nitrous oxide every day at work should not be, that it would be unsafe for a yeah. pregnant worker. Uh, so our dentist should be rostering any of their pregnant staff somewhere else, away from wherever you're administering nitrous oxide or you know, make sure it's being that the waste gas and everything is being eliminated appropriately. But for a single patient who's getting in on a single day and not in their first trimester, th there's really no evidence to say that's a problem and so it's, it's probably okay. Yeah. Thank you for raising the issue with staff, because I think that sometimes we forget we're focused on the patient, which, you know, we should be. It's fantastic. But we forget mm. that also our staff are getting exposed to these agents. Nitrants being a classic example. That's a very simple rule of thumb. If I have a pregnant staff member and I'm using nitrous, then just just swap them out with someone else. It, mm. They don't need to be in the room. They don't need that risk. Yeah. And if it's you and you're the pregnant person, <laughs> what do you do then? Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? And yeah. practicing pregnant is is like a whole different <laughs> ball game. I tell you, it's um, it's almost like an extreme sport, but it's fun too. Should we talk about some other drugs in pregnancy? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, so um, I suppose the main thing is to please do not rely on those letters of alphabet mm -hmm. as if they were a, an accurate description of the safety in pregnancy. Uh, a lot of resources like the Australian Medicines Handbook 
and the uh, United States uh, FDA have now abandoned using letters of the alphabet to communicate pregnancy safety information about drugs because they were so limited. And we also wanted to convey information not just about the three trimesters of pregnancy, but also um, pre-antenatal, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of like fertility and becoming pregnant, and then differentiate the safety for first, second and third trimester from each other because there's different risks. And then finally, the risks uh, postnatally after delivery, there are also risks to consider. So now um, reliable information will be presented as those five things. And it won't be just one letter of the alphabet, it'll be entire sentences that tell you stuff. Uh, so theoretically, things like um, penicillin and antibiotics are totally fine. And we know that from uh, much use over many decades. But what we need to remind ourselves also is that we never test drugs in pregnancy. There are no spare people to practice on. No. So, you know, you can't expect there's going to be a clinical trial. And yet the drug companies will say in their product information, uh, there is an insufficient clinical trial information to give any uh, advice on safety in pregnancy. So what we know from clinical practice is gleaned from real-life people who take a drug either by accident or are under supervision, and then we interview them on delivery of the baby, and that data is collected, and that's there's centres around the world who do that. Um, and so we do have a lot more information than you'd think. Just make sure you're consulting the right resources. But most drugs are perfectly safe in pregnancy because we even give Chemo, cancer chemotherapy. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot more safety than you think. It just It's about timing and about being clever with, with how you give the dose. So you mentioned about sensible resources or good resources. So as a general dental practitioner, what type of resources should I be looking for? Don't consult the drug company information. <laughs> <laughs> they often will say completely wrong information that contradicts clinical information because they're covering themselves medico legally. So do consult the Australian Medicines Handbook. Uh, they've That's tried lovely. to keep it simple as well. So for something like metronidazole, they'll say safe uh, and, you know, short and sweet. Uh, whereas if you were to read the uh, PI from a drug company, they'll actually talk about potential carcinogenicity and mutagenicity from studies in like the 70s in a Petri dish. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but I'm not a Petri dish, are you? No, not often. <laughs> It's very scary. It's misleading information. It's probably irrelevant, uh, but they feel like they're covering themselves medically legally. So stick with the AMH. And if you want to go past that, I'd actually go to the uh, website called drugs.com. Drugs.com. Okay. Yeah. Drug, it looks commercial, but it's actually the consumer arm of the FDA in the States, the Food and Drug Administration. Okay. Yep. Because they've converted to the new way of presenting drugs in pregnancy information, they will give you the full advice, antenatal, semester, uh, semester, trimester one, two, and three, and postnatal. postnatal. Uh, it's, it's very good and fully referenced. Oh, that's fantastic. That's a really good resource. I'll be making a note of that. Thank you. Um, I've got a very specific question just to move into our last topic, but I know it's one that um, is something you and I have certainly discussed before. So... Under the Queensland Medicine, Drugs and Poisons Act 2019, which I suspect you're far more familiar with than I, um, it states that only dentists may supply medicines to patients, including high fluoride, S3, toothpaste. If this is so, and I, does an OHT or a hygienist or therapist need to consult a dentist and have them record the prescription in the records for it to be dispensed to a patient? Yes. It's <laughs> annoying though isn't it but uh it, it's it's stupid that high strength fluoride toothpaste is regulated as a schedule three pharmacist only medicine but uh that's what the tga and their wisdom thought would suit this kind of medicine and mm -hmm. they were trying to say you know a specific health professional uh should be making it available only on consultation with that health professional and they want it to be a dentist there should be a dentist only schedule but there isn't Mm -hmm. uh, but there are other regulations around this. So, um, and this is really, it's been set up for pharmacies. So other Schedule three medicines are things like Ventolin puffers. Mm -hmm. um, what else? Uh, uh, sedating antihistamines, for example, like doxylamine, um, Restivit, which is very abusable, um, pseudoephedrine. They want you to be consulting with the registered health professional who has uh, enough training to, know, to determine a legitimate 
therapeutic need, that's the expression. And then S3s have to be recorded, as you say, as a, like a prescription, and they need to be labelled in Queensland. They need to be fully labelled. In other states, they only need um, like the name and address of a uh, health practice where they came from. Uh, but also they're uh, prohibited from advertising. And so what we have had in the past is people advertising that from a dental practice that, that you can buy high-strength fluoride toothpaste from there, and that means that's illegal. Gosh. Uh, but the bottom line is that, yeah, OHTs and hygienists are currently not authorised to directly give the patient the high-strength fluoride toothpaste. It has to be from the dentist only. So could they get around that, for want of a better phrase, by recommending it to the patient or writing it on a post-it note, or does that still meet the standard for a prescription? Oh, look, let's face it, that's what they do in pharmacy. And oh, I should have said that before, that, you know, the pharmacy assistant will be out the front. They'll, they'll be asked by the patient for the uh, Schedule 3 medicine. The, the pharmacy assistant will ask a lot of meaningful questions and then they'll go and have a quick chat to the pharmacist and the pharmacist will nod or shake their head and then the pharmacy assistant comes back with the medicine. And, and at the moment that would be illegal, but we kind of tolerate it. Mm-hmm. So as long as there's been some sort of interrogation of the patient to find out what's going on, and uh, the involvement of the health professional who can make that appropriate clinical decision, then I think everyone will be happy because uh, they know that you're busy and you can't be dropping everything all the time for these sorts of things. And it's probably safer with high-strength fluoride toothpaste than it is with pseudoepidrine. I was just about to say, I did not know that those two drugs were in the same bracket. That would never have occurred to me. Well, that would never have occurred to me. Like, yeah. What's the toxicity? I can actually tell you what the toxicity is. Please do. It's otosclerosis. So that's hardening of the external auditory canal has been associated with enthusiastic use of high-strength fluoride toothpaste. There's like 10 case reports in the UK. Gosh. And um, one of there's a, a drug information service there run by the Royal Pharmaceutical Society that specialises in dentistry and they've collated the, the adverse reports. Um, so I, you know, I think we've all been scouring the literature to find out what's the big deal about using high-strength fluoride toothpaste because it probably won't kill you. But I think if it made you deaf from hardening of your external auditory canal, that's a problem. I must say that of the cases, some of them were cleaning their teeth with it like 20 times a day. Yeah, I was going to say enthusiastic overuse yes. and then got to wonder if there's other things like if there's high fluoride in their water, but then why were they having it if there was? But yeah, there, there'll be there'll be facts behind those cases. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. We, we tried to lobby to get the scheduling changed, uh, but the manufacturer is not that keen, I think, because then they have to do a lot to change the packaging and labelling and that would be expensive. Yeah, I remember we discussed that before. I just have one last question for you, please, Jerry. And it's to do with we as dental practitioners, our remit is to prescribe medications for the practice of dentistry. There are also other things, for example, um, or to prescribe drugs for dental practice, dental Mm. purposes, I should say. We're not supposed to prescribe for family and friends and we're not supposed to prescribe for ourselves. If we were to step outside of that, so for example, um, I were to prescribe something for, I don't know, I was to prescribe some drugs for my dental assistant because she's flying and she wants to be able to sleep on the plane. So we've stepped very far outside the practice of dentistry there, plus she's my dental assistant. What are the implications for my prescriber number if I were to use, or some might suggest the word, abuse it that way? Mm. Well, Uh, the rules and regulations vary from state to state. So, for example, in Queensland, uh, none of what you just stated is illegal. Legally, you can prescribe for family and friends and for yourself. However, in Victoria, it's right out, uh, and that would be against the law. Uh, But the next level of consideration is whether you just should, isn't it? It's the moral and professional obligations involved. And there have been deaths from... Uh, prescribing in this setting so one that I was involved with was actually a medical one but the um, it was a dental case however the the patient had had uh, their wisdom teeth removed he was a bit of a wuss and he was demanding pain management nothing was working I must have opioids Mm -hmm. and uh, eventually the the dentist had given them everything they felt they could get so 
rather than going to their medical prescriber, they asked a family friend who said, oh, don't worry, I've got some methadone at home, you can have that. And yeah, and she just got it out of the cupboard at home, gave it to him, and he took all of them that night, and he was found dead in his bed the next morning. Uh, the act that was bad enough, but the problem was she did not engage in a professional consultation, and she did not know that he was on Prozac, the antidepressant. And by being on that medicine, uh, that would have blocked the metabolism of the methadone and also the previous opioids that the um, dentist had prescribed, I think he just handed in forward, uh, and caused accumulation of those drugs. And so she was completely unaware of that. And it was only discovered on blood testing uh, and in the autopsy results, there were these very high levels of opioids in his bloodstream. He did take a lot, but also they, would have, they were far beyond what you would have expected from that consumption. And so one of the dynamics when we're... Uh, prescribing for friends and family is that you don't want to ask too many personal questions because it's embarrassing yeah you know and you just might not find out some very important details that you need to know so for example your friend who's asking for sleeping tablets for the flight could be planning a suicide for example that's right and, and not telling you and you're giving her the drugs to use or or she's on other drugs that would interact and and make that very toxic she might die on the plane from from an overdose uh Similarly for yourself, well, we, we've just had an arrest of a doctor at a hospital in Brisbane from a doctor who was prescribing for himself and also in his wife's name, but all of it for us was for himself yeah. because he could. And we all, when people, when pharmacists were interviewed afterwards, they said, well, we didn't think it was great, but what could we do? Yeah. Uh, you, you just can't really know what the true story is if we let people do this. So it's more about thinking about the moral and ethical obligations um, rather than just the legal obligations. And it's best to just then keep it uh, objective and have prescribing done by someone outside of your family and outside of yourself. Go see a proper doctor and have them prescribe for you. No, that's incredibly helpful advice. And I couldn't agree with you more. So thank you so much for your time today, Jerry. That's fantastic. And thank you all for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening. And we hope that this podcast was helpful to you. And we look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.